The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. This is the words of Charles Spurgeon, the famed English preacher, the pastor of London's New Park Street Church, the last half of the 19th century. Charles Spurgeon's ministry is widely known even today. Thousands and thousands came to hear him preach on every Sunday, hear him minister the word. Many others came to the actual church facility to understand the ministry, to get a tour of the building even. Some would get a personal tour from him and hear these words at one particular place. Here is the powerhouse of this church. What was he referring to? Any guess? Not the pulpit. The basement prayer room, which was very often, even during Sunday morning services, filled with earnest prayers on their knees, crying out to God, asking him to move, to come and to affect the church and its ministry to move. One of the greatest of all preachers was profoundly concerned with prayer because preaching and prayer are connected. The ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer are symbiotic, symbiotic. As prayer advances, so does the word. As prayer declines, so does the word. He knew this and he was concerned for it. Which brings me around to this morning, the book of Acts and our church. Over the last number of weeks, we've been preaching through the book of Acts. And last week, we were in Acts chapter 6. And we saw there that a problem arose in the church a serious problem. Some of the widows were being neglected in the distribution of food. They were physically hurting. It was a serious problem that needed to be dealt with. In other words, uh, they had to face it somehow and, and address and fix this thing, or people would be hurting, and a rift would likely develop in the church. So it had to be dealt with. But there was potential for an even greater problem to arise, depending on how they dealt with that problem of the, the widows being neglected could have dealt with it in a way that would have had the apostles themselves turn to this issue and give their primary time to it, and they would have then been neglecting job one, the ministry of the word. They didn't want to do that. They couldn't do that. And so they addressed it and solved it in a different way, appointed some qualified folks to take care of it, and then verse 7 of that chapter said that the word continued to grow, to increase, and the church continued to grow and increase. Problem solved. That was last week. But there's some more in that chapter that as I reflected on that text and then received a little bit of feedback from some folks, there's some more there that I think it would profit us to stop and meditate on a little bit. So we're going to do that. We're going to pause here at chapter 6 in order to topically address two additional subjects. This week and next week when Pastor Ralph Porter, a former pastor of this church, is here to preach. This week and next week we both will be addressing the topic of prayer and then After that, we'll be addressing the topic of the ministry of the table that arises there in Acts 6. Talk about deacons, that sort of ministry, how it's an advantage to our church, how it applies to us, things of that nature. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks, next three weeks, in fact. This morning, focused on prayer. Critical partner to the ministry of the Word. The engine that gave power to Spurgeon's preaching, the engine that gave power to the preaching of the early church. And yet, 
As I look at my life and consider the life of our church, I'm profoundly concerned. Profoundly concerned. Prayer goes with the Word. Prayer gives power to the Word. But are we, in fact, some sort of a oddly modified Pontiac Escalade? A behemoth of a car on the outside. But you throw up the hood and you find, strangely, a little lawnmower engine inside. And so it's not going anywhere. Is that the kind of powerhouse that we have? A little lawnmower engine in a big, huge car? Unfortunately, I think so. That has to change because we have been called to go somewhere. We have been called to be more than we are. To take on more than we're taking on. I'm not talking about results. I'm talking about the mission that has been assigned to us. We have been sent individually and corporately sent, called to make Christ an issue everywhere. You, in your life, the people around you, us, the people around us, and we're part of a big movement to make Christ an issue, to lift up and cause people to enjoy the supremacy of God over all things everywhere, in every nation, amongst every tongue and tribe and people. That is an insurmountable task. Cannot do that by ourselves with a little lawnmower engine. We need more than that. I hope that changes in us. Towards that end, I'm going to be preaching topically this morning and then next week as well on prayer. A little departure from normal. I usually preach through a book, but I'm going to be hopping around a little bit, though. I'll be hanging around a couple of main passages. A couple main sections will be in Acts a little bit, a little bit in Ephesians, and a little bit in Luke. A lot that could be said about prayer, but I'm focusing on one particular aspect, prayer as it powers the ministry of the Word, and especially as it powers the ministry of the Word going out. Ministry of the Word is also goes on in the church, but the ministry of the Word as it goes out. You might hear that slant as well. So pray with me now, and then we'll begin. Holy God, you have given us an assignment and a calling that is remarkably complex and large, fascinating and interesting, intimidating and terrifying. How can we do it? We can't do it. You can You never called us to this by ourselves, Lord. And I pray you would convince us of this fact, that you have called us to this with you, that you intend to work through us. I pray, Lord, that you would come and you would be in this room this morning, and that you would move on our hearts and on our minds, and that you would change us to grab hold of this mission with you, not apart from you. God, we need change in this area. So I pray, Lord, would you send the Spirit here this morning. Of course you are here, but would you come in power? Would you send the Spirit? Would you commission Him, Father, to come and sit heavy on us? To make biblical truth live 
to make it sing, to make it strike us, to change us with it. Spirit, that is your job. Would you convict even Christians this morning? Please do that, Lord, for the advancement of your glory. Your glory is in all the earth, but there is a day yet coming when it will cover the earth to great depth, wider and deeper and higher and longer than it is now. Would you bring that, would you use us a little bit in that process? Change us, I pray, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. The main thing that I pray you are confronted with and changed by this morning is conceptually simple. It is not hard. But far more than just intellectually understanding it, what I'm praying and hoping is that it will grip you and change you. It will affect your heart and your habits. Here's the simple point. God powers His Word in response to prayer. So pray, pray, pray. God powers His Word in response to prayer, so pray. That's His usual way of doing things. Not to say that He's sovereign, He can move and do things independent of prayer. He doesn't have to use our prayer, but He is a God of means. And He very commonly, usually, responds to prayer to give life to the Word, to power it, to drive it, to move it forward. So pray. That's the simple conceptual point here. I'm going to make three observations about that. Number one, here's the first point. The first observation I make is in relation to what I see in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, and a little addition that's made compared to Acts chapter 6, verse 2. This is right in the heart of the issue arising with the, the widows having need, and the apostles say in verse 2, it would be wrong, it would not be right for us to neglect the preaching of the word. So two verses later, they say, we have to focus on job one, preaching the word. And two verses later, they say, therefore we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so what pops up there is that I, I wonder, did they hear themselves a minute ago? We must focus on job one preaching, so we're going to pray. Is that not a distraction? That's a little confusing to me. Unless the ministry of prayer and the word are not two entirely separate things, such that one distracts from the other. Flip it around and put it positively. It seems to me that the apostles view prayer and word as connected somehow. Prayer drives word somehow. Prayer must bring down something from God that enhances the ministry of the word, not inhibits it. They're not being distracted by praying. They are enhancing the ministry of the word somehow. What does prayer bring down? That's what I wonder. I'm thinking about that. And then I recall something that we've seen often in the book of Acts so far. Remember how we began the book of Acts back in Luke, actually. Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and so we looked at the very end of Luke to see how he sets up Acts. So at the very end of Luke, this is Luke 24, verse 49, we have Jesus teaching just before he leaves, and he says, I am sending the promise of my Father. He's coming. 
Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Wait there. Power is coming. Wait in the city. And then transitioning over into Acts. Very beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Again, Jesus taught them, saying, Wait for the promise of the Father. You soon will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then a few verses later, chapter 1, verse 8. Quoted that verse several times because I'm emphasizing the second half of verse 8. You shall be my witnesses. What's the first half of verse 8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, etc. Jesus did not say, what's all this, put this together. Jesus did not say, you have the Old Testament, you've seen my life, you've seen the crucifixion, you've seen the resurrection, you're about to see the ascension, get to work. Start preaching. In fact, he said the exact opposite, don't preach yet. Wait. Because if you take up this word and begin to preach it, without this power that I'm going to send upon you, it will fail. It will not work. You need divine power. You need divine power joined to the word if it's going to have any effect. It's my first observation. Now, what's he referring to? He's talking about Pentecost, of course. It's coming right up. And so you continue on down through chapter 1, and that's what they pray for. They pray, God, send the Spirit. It's not written in there. It just says they devote themselves to prayer, anticipating His promised gift of the Spirit. And it happens. Spirit comes. Pentecost happens. They begin to preach in power. We might think, well, that's done. But lest we think that that is all that we need, since that point, the Spirit's been poured out. Every Christian now has the Spirit living inside of him or her. We have all been baptized in the Spirit, if you are a Christian. But lest we think that that's all we need, that that's all the power, there's something else on top of that. We read another phrase in Acts that occurs a few times. Filled with the Spirit. Peter, speaking the Sanhedrin, chapter 4, verse 8. He's speaking there, filled with the Spirit. Continue on to verse 31. The people, after they were threatened and they prayed, were filled with the Spirit, and they preached the Word in boldness. Last week, chapter 6, Stephen, a man filled with the Spirit, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power, preaches, and his opponents are unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he speaks. Peter, the Christians, Stephen, they all have the spirit living inside of them, but here's something else. They aren't just indwelt, they are filled with the spirit. And the result, bold speaking of the word. Speaking of the word that carries the day in their Discussion with outsiders. They have the Spirit and then are filled with the Spirit after Pentecost. Divine power is necessary. That's what Acts is trying to communicate to us. You need the Spirit to come, and He comes at Pentecost. And after that, you need the Spirit to fill you. 
You need to be filled to have this power that will run through you and will affect others. It is the Spirit's job to drive the Word. The power that will clothe you from on high. Acts is trying to communicate that. We have a Word here. But the power is in God. Not in the ink on the page. Ephesians calls this the sword of the Spirit. What the Spirit takes up to wield in battle. It penetrates into a human heart. It divides us. It convicts, transforms us, renews us. When its bearer wields it and drives it home. I cannot do that. You can't do that. He can't. Through our words, it's his sword. He wields it. Divine power must be joined to the word if it's going to have any effect. Why is that? Why do we need that kind of divine power? Why? Because of the nature of the human condition that the word keeps bumping into. Think about this briefly. If you want to jot down Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, you can look at them later. Lots of other passages. Romans 8, would have some things to say about this. But in Corinthians and in Ephesians, what words does God use to describe people who are not yet Christians? Who are spiritually not believers? Ephesians uses the word dead. Corinthians uses the word blind. Obviously, it's speaking spiritually, it's a metaphor, but it's trying to communicate something clear. Dead and blind, not partially seeing and somewhat ill. Dead and blind. The point there is, I am unable to persuade dead people. I am unable to shine light such that blind people can see it. I can't. The sovereign one can He has that ability. Keep reading on in Ephesians, and it says that He brings to life. We saw last week in James 1, God, by His own will, brings forth, births people by the word of truth. You read in Corinthians, and it says that God shines light into the heart, clears up the blindness. God alone God the Spirit is capable of breaking that enslavement. He can move in. He takes up the Word. He uses it to convict people of sin. We can talk about sin, and it can be understood intellectually, but conviction, which is critical, the first step, conviction only comes when the Spirit moves. It is His job to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He takes up the Word and convicts shows people, warns people about the wrath that is coming. And then he lifts up the hope that is. A great hope. A glorious and beautiful hope. Christ and him crucified. Foolishness and offense until the Spirit makes it clear. Only the Spirit can do that. We can talk about these concepts. It is His power that makes them live, that drives them home. 
It brings conviction that creates hope. We need divine power to make that plain. Without that, it is hopeless. And we end up doing one of two things. Either quitting, because we only can bang our head against the wall so often, and then we say, I want something else. So we quit, or more commonly today in America, we change the gospel. Conviction of sin is critical. Conviction of sin comes from the Spirit. Let's remove that and just have people agree with us that we make mistakes. And then let's move on past that. That is not the same as conviction of sin. It's part and parcel to the gospel most often preached in America today. Someone who responds to that gospel has not actually responded to Christ. Don't preach that. Conviction of sin must happen. And we can't make it happen. God must make it happen. Divine power must be joined to the message. It must, there's going to be any lasting effect. So here we stand with the message, preaching it, knowing that if God does not move, these words are going to fall right out of my mouth, right out of the floor, and have no effect. God, help! That's the second observation. This word begins to move to prayer. You see, here's the need that we have. We see it in Acts, that he tells them to wait for this power. You combine it with the human condition. You see, oh, that's why we need the power? How do you get it? You ask. God, please come. Second observation. Number two. God very often waits for earnest prayer before pouring out the Spirit in power. God very often waits for earnest prayer before pouring out the Spirit in power. You can spread this over all kinds of different prayer. It certainly applies for prayer that's fueling the ministry of the Word. He often waits before he moves in power. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11, or you can follow along. That's the passage that is printed in your insert in your bulletin. In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching on prayer. I'm going to be focusing on verses 5 to 13, but 1 to 4 sets up the context. Jesus himself was praying, and these disciples, the, the same ones who later tenaciously cling to prayer in the ministry of the Word, they say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. We see you praying, teach us how to pray. And so he explains in a couple of verses there, he gives an outline of the types of things they should pray. It's not an exhaustive outline that you can just say those words and then be done. But he's giving some topics that we should lift up in request to God because those things come from God. Incidentally, I look there, follow, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We're on the right track for connecting this to the mission of spreading the, the fame of Christ and bringing people to come to revere him. That's where the prayer starts. Father, Hallowed be your name. Bring your kingdom to come on the earth. And moves on to other requests for ourselves. So that's what he tells them about things they should pray. And then he continues on in verses 5 to 13 to encourage them to pray. Let me read that passage. It's Luke 11, 5 to 13. And he said to them, Which of you... 
who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, or some translations will say persistence or boldness, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Verses 5 to 8 tell a little ordinary story about how people work. You guys, you're friends, right? They'd behave like this, wouldn't they? It's late, you go over, you knock on their door, you wake them up. Some, some, a need has arisen in your home. It's not dire, but it is socially necessary that you feed this traveler that suddenly arrived. You don't have any food, you go knock on your friend's door. Give me some bread. And you wake him up. And he is initially less than eager to help. But you persist, not meanly, but you persist. You're staying after it. And he's thinking, man, I can't believe he hasn't gone home yet. This must be kind of serious if he's still here knocking. So he gets up and gives you what you ask for, doesn't he? That's how people work. Not because, notice verse 8 says specifically, not because he's your friend, but because you keep asking. Persistent. That's how people work, right? That's the point. And I tell you, verses 9 and 10, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, fine. He, he repeats this same idea three times, trying to make a point, and the grammar of those verses make the point again. Persistence is the issue. Ask. Not ask. Ask. Seek. Knock. Because you persist, he'll give you the bread, won't he? Not ask once, he gives you the, I'm in bed, and then you leave. Not just a one-time ask, an ongoing thing. So he emphasizes persistence with a heavy dose of encouragement. You persist, you will get it. That's how it will work. It will happen. Everyone who asks, receives. Now, careful with this. Jesus is not a fool. He is not ceding right to become God to you or me. Such that if you ask, you get your will done on earth. He's, he's not a fool here. The emphasis is on ask. It works out, doesn't it? That, that's a simple point. Put it back into the story. He's saying, conversely, if you don't ask, if you don't go to your friend's house, don't knock on his door, take the first 
go away for an answer and leave, you will not get the bread. He's not going to wake up in the middle of the night and say, you know, it's midnight. I bet that my friend needs some bread. Get up and take it to you. That's not going to happen. Ask. And he's going to resist a little bit at first. Ask, ask, ask. You'll get it. That's how people work. Askers receive. Parents are even more like this. Assuming now that he's established the askers receive, he moves on and says, so what are you going to receive? Well, what do parents give? Which one of you, which parent that's not in prison, what parent do you know that says, finally, they're depending on me, now I can nail them? Who says that? Nobody. Your kids come to you and ask you, and as a parent, you give them good things. Of course you do. That's how it works. And here's the punchline, verse 13. Notice the contrasts and the logic here. If you people then, who are evil, that's a startling assessment of humanity by Jesus, but he's right because he's Jesus. He says that to a group of people that includes his disciples. You then are evil. That's who we are. We're sinful. We're tainted with bias and ulterior motives. We're selfish and we're lazy and we're greedy and we're prone to inaction and we're opposed to inconvenience. That's who we are. We're evil. And somehow or another, even the types of people like us have figured out how to give to our friends and to give good things to our kids. We figured that out. How much more then? Here's the logic. Our Father in heaven is none of those things. He is not evil. We've even figured that out. How much more will he give? And will he give good things, the pinnacle of good things even, the Spirit? Think this through, he's saying. On earth, between people, asking gets things. And asking of parents gets good things. How much more? If you ask your Father, will He give you a good thing, the good thing, the Spirit, who will do all kinds of stuff in life, including, our focus this morning, drive the ministry of the Word. He will give the powerful Spirit that we need. Askers will receive Him. The implication? It doesn't expressly say this, but the implication is that if askers, the point of persist, askers will receive him, an asker, one time, or the one who never bothers to ask, won't. That's the implication of the story. It makes no sense if he says askers receive him and non-askers also receive him. It doesn't make any difference. Why would he tell the story? Persistence in prayer brings the Spirit. When we ask, no, not, you can't demand it. He's not on call. Persistence in prayer has the promise that God will, when it is right, give the Spirit. Non-prayer should expect otherwise. 
Why is that? Why does God so often wait for earnest prayer before pouring out his spirit and power? Why would he do that? I mean, if you look at the story, you might say, because he's asleep and doesn't want to be bothered. It's not the case. The contrast is making clear that that's not the case. People are like this. God's not. You could look at Luke 18 and you see some more of this here. The widow persists with the evil judge who doesn't care about God or men. God's contrasted with that kind of a person. It's not because God's asleep and doesn't care. There's something else going on. Think of it like this. Simple example. Imagine that you're a loving father. This might work for mothers too, but in my mind it works better for a father. So imagine that you're a loving father of young kids, and they're playing basketball out in the driveway. They're young and they somehow get the ball stuck up there, wedged between the rim and the backboard. You've seen that happen. They throw it up there, and it gets stuck, and they're like, oh, man. And you happen to see out the window. You notice that it's happening. The ball's not bouncing anymore, and you look out there and see it stuck up there. Realize what's happened. You see them kind of trying to get it down. Now, you want them to keep playing, so you're motivated to get the ball down, but there's a couple of ways you could go about that. You could wait for them to lose interest and walk away. And then when nobody's looking, you come out with a broom and knock it down. And they'll come back. The ball will be on the ground. They'll look around, not know how it came about, but think, okay, and they'll keep playing. Mission accomplished. Unless you have a larger mission. Because that gets the ball down, but it accomplishes nothing towards knitting you closer together with your kids or displaying something marvelous about you. They have no idea that you were involved. You could do that. Another way you could go about it would be to walk outside into the midst of the problem with the kids standing there, throwing their shoes at it and shaking the pole or whatever they're doing and say, is there a problem? So, yeah, the ball's stuck. And they're going to ask you, can you help us? You say, oh, do you really need my help? Why don't you get it down yourself? Oh, we're trying. What, it doesn't work? Sure, oh, come on, man. You're four feet tall. It's only six more feet. Can't you jump up there and get it? Come on. All the while, with a little smile, a little smirk. So they're starting to get that you're on their side. But not quite yet. You're just playing with them a little bit. Come on! Can't you jump? Aren't you eight yet? Come on! And they're looking at you, and finally they say, Come on, Dad! And so you reach over, grab a hold of one of those little guys, pick him up, and let him knock the ball down. And while he grabs on a hold of the rim, and is working on the ball, he looks around and realizes just how high up in the air he is. Twice as high as he is. As tall as he is. He says, don't drop me, Dad. Don't worry, I got gotcha. you. Just knock the ball down. Well, actually, while you're up there, why don't you just dunk it? And so he does. He works the ball out and slams it home. And you let him down. And now every kid wants a ride to the rim to dunk. In your power. And you let them do it, and they want to do it again. You let them do it again, and you help them out, and they're like, Thanks, Dad, you're so cool. You can do anything. You can even help little four-foot-tall me dunk the impossible. Mission accomplished. Ball's been freed. 
The game can go on. You've been knit together with your kids, and they've seen something else of you that is awesome. In their eyes, you're now ten feet tall. That's what God is about in everything that he does. His purpose is not just to fix it so that we can carry on with life. His purpose is to show himself to us in the midst of the circumstances of life so that as we carry on with life, we are enamored with him. We are amazed by him. And he's 10 feet, 20 feet tall in our eyes. Awesome is his name. He does the impossible and lets me be a part of it. Little four foot tall me dunking. Little human me spreading the gospel and seeing the glory of the Lord come to cover all of the earth as the waters cover the sea. How can that be? Not in my power, only in his. Don't drop me, Dad. I got you. I can do this. Trust me. That's what he's about in all of life, and he's definitely about that in prayer. That's why he responds to prayer. That's why he has ordained prayer. Not because he is uninformed and needs to figure out what needs to be done, but so that we can be joined together in the doing. And it can be done. And he can rise up in our eyes. And he wants us to persist in it, kind of like the dad playing with the kids, to see... Really? Do you really believe this? Or are you going to ask me once and then say, oh, forget it, I'll go figure out another way. Or forget it, I'd rather play catch. Or forget it, I didn't really like that anyway. It's not my ball. I don't care. Are we going to hold to him? Or if he says nothing the first time, we're going to give up. Or the third time, are we going to give up? Or the fifth time, are we going to give up? The parable of the persistent widow, which we should go to, we don't have time. Why does she keep, many of you know this, why does she keep going to the judge? The text says she has a, a grievance. She keeps going to the judge because he's the only one who can do anything about it. Do you believe that? And tomorrow, when he doesn't do it, do you still believe that? Do you still believe that? Or do you find out, actually, I only sort of believe that. This isn't working out. I'm going to go to plan B. Because plan B might also work. It's unbelief. He's trying to work that out of us. So sometimes he says, let's wait. I give you a little twinkle, a little smile, like this promise right here that says, I'm on your side. I will come through. Keep asking. Keep coming to me. He waits often for persistent, earnest prayer because of what it shows us about him and what it shows us about ourselves and how it joins us to him. Observation one, we need divine power to be joined to the word. The spirit of God to take up his sword and swing it. He will give the Spirit to persistent askers. What's the third observation? You can fill this one in yourself. Ask. Ask. Pray, pray, pray. It's the third point. 
To not pray is to ask for the Spirit to stay away. To not pray is to not have the Spirit, which is to ask for the ministry of the Word to fail. To not pray, to not have the Spirit, and to have the ministry of the Word fail is to ask to have the church not grow, quantitatively and qualitatively. That's foolish. Why do we act like that? Why don't we pray? I'm making a little bit of an assumption here that we don't. I don't know that for certain about you, but as I look at myself, I'm a combination of embarrassed and grieved. As I look at our church, I'm a combination of embarrassed and grieved, and several of you have said the same thing to me. It's not that we don't have a basement prayer room, it's that we don't have prayer. Prayer that is especially orientated towards spiritual things, towards asking God to take the word and change us spiritually. We're talking a lot about turning a corner and becoming a church that cares about other people. People who are not believers, who are lost currently. This is a critical element of that. The Escalade is not going to climb the hill with a lawnmower engine in it. Not going to happen. We need a powerhouse. That must be the case. Why aren't we like that? Part of the reason might be confusion. Part of it might be confusion. Either you weren't aware that this is needed, or you don't really know what to pray about. You kind of come to this point of saying, Spirit, would you... Do something. I don't really know how to think about this, but just help. And after a while, saying the same thing over and over again, it's a little tiring, and so you kind of lose interest in it. There might be some confusion or some misinformation or some lack of information there. Towards that end, I, I hope this is pressing upon you that we must pray continually. And towards the, the problem of what do you pray, make one suggestion. We've just ordered a, a number of books that did not make it here in time for this week, but should be here by next week, called How to Develop a Powerful Prayer Life. Short book, cost you two and a half dollars. It's worth it. Two dollars and fifty cents. It'll encourage you to develop a prayer life yourself. There are many places in there where they have, he has sample prayers written out, not like word for word, but like bullet point. Pray like this, and he'll cite some verses. Pray like this, cite some verses. Different types of prayer for different people. It's a helpful thing. Of course, not just if you read it, but if you actually apply it. But it will be a helpful thing. Two and a half dollars should be on the book table next week. I hope. Take a look at that. I would encourage you. But, if we're honest, I think that that's not the biggest problem. I don't think confusion is the main reason we're not praying like this. Really, at the root of it, I think, proud unbelief is the problem. Not blatant, proud unbelief, like, I don't need to pray, I don't need you. That's really, not like that. More subtle, proud unbelief that just says, sure, I need to pray, and then doesn't pray. Because you really don't think you need to pray. I mean, down inside here, yeah, up here, sure, I need to pray, of course. I haven't disagreed with anything you said. 
But down in here, the fact that you don't pray says that you disagree with what I just said. I'm on there with you. I know that. I have all these good intentions and don't follow through with it because I'm not really convinced. Proof of that is what happens when crisis hits? You get deathly ill or your kids get deathly ill. You lose your job. Then you pray. Why? Because now you are convinced that you need to pray. Now you are convinced. This is, this is beyond me. This is much bigger than me. I don't have the capability of working this out. I need to pray. Now, now I'm convinced. Prior to that, I gave intellectual assent to it, but I wasn't really convinced. Everything seemed to be okay. Just like helplessness generates prayer, perceived ability generates prayerlessness. That's what's going on in our lives. We think we got it covered. Everything here is kind of okay. Nothing's really too bad. We're capable people. We've got a church that's going okay. We're more or less paying the bills. That's fine. Now, most of us haven't seen anybody genuinely converted to Christ in quite some time, but I am. So that's okay. That's not okay. That's not okay. There are a million people who live in this valley that don't know Christ. That don't worship Him in spirit and in truth. That are zealous for Him, but not according to knowledge. It's not okay. And if we walk out of the door and try to engage them, we're going to fall flat on our faces unless the Spirit of God moves. How might that happen? Let's think about that for a second. Perhaps God would give the Spirit if we prayed. That is the uniform testimony of history. Look at any revival, any big moving of God, and you can invariably trace it back to prayer. Sometimes little groups of people getting earnest. Sometimes large groups of people getting earnest. Now, God is sovereign. He can choose to do it without prayer if he wants to, but he uses means. Most commonly, he uses this means. He sends, he pours out the Spirit, he fills individuals, he fills large numbers of people, he convicts people very often in response to prayer. The only reason we don't think we need to pray is that we don't really think that we have to undertake this mission. We shrink back from it, or we've changed the mission. Change the gospel. Change the target. Change the, I'm not really supposed to share the gospel. I'm just supposed to be nice next to somebody, which is a part of it, but not the sum total of it. Don't avoid the task. Don't change the gospel. What are we going to do about that? Well, in some ways, some corporate-type things. We're looking at church-wide. We're, we're looking at starting a, a midweek service that will coincide, perhaps, if we do this, still weighing the options, coincide with the new midweek youth activities, probably at the same time. The idea is to create an opportunity to come together and pray. More information about that if we 
decide that's a good way to go. But you know what? That's going to fall flat in its face. People might come for a little while, but prayer meetings don't make prayers. Prayers make prayer meetings. We can write it in the calendar, put it in the bulletin, prayer meeting, whatever, and some might come initially, but nobody will stay if you're not already a prayer. So it all comes back to you. Confess the sin of prayerlessness because it is rooted in, some of it's rooted in confusion or uncertainty, but a large portion of it is rooted in, I don't really think I need to pray, which is pride. I got it under control. I'm going to either think too highly of my own abilities or too small of the mission. Confess that and ask God to make you a prayer. Pick up a copy of this book. Look at some of the things to pray. Pray in your personal quiet time. Pray pray with a friend or a spouse, your small group, whatever. Whatever helps you. I, I find that I sometimes am helped by praying with somebody else. I'm helped by speaking prayers out loud. Some people are helped by writing them down. Lots of ideas in this book. The biggest one, though, is you've got to pray for God to make you a prayer. God must pour this out on you. May he give us grace for that. God powers his word in response to prayer. So pray, pray, pray. Let's pray. We're going to move towards communion here. So I'm going to give you a chance to pray, and then I'll close it. Pray that God would speak whatever part of this message needs to strike you. Confess whatever sin you need to confess. Ask him for grace to make you a prayer. Whatever fits for you, pray. And then I'll close this and we'll move directly into communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.